Good morning, welcome to Sojourn. If you guys have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Been working through 1 Corinthians for quite some time now. Got to chapter 6 this week, we'll do half of it this week, and Jim will preach the other half next week for you. There's a really popular genre of television show now, if you turn on any time during the day, and one of the, one of that genre is this genre of, of courts that, that are just shown on TV. So you've got the People's Court and Judge Joe Mathis, or Joe Math- Judge Mathis, I don't know what his first name is, Judge Joe Brown, maybe they have the same first name, there's a lot of court shows, so it's hard to keep track of them all. Judge Judy was real popular when I was in high school, so much so that there was a, a bus driver at our school whose name was Judy, and so we just started calling her the judge, because she kind of reminded us of Judge Judy, how she handled the bus. But if you, if you watch these shows, like this is, it's, it's almost, it's a complete circus. I mean, it's amazing that there's like, there's no end to the amount of people that will just come before the public, will just lay their grievances down and let someone decide it in front of cameras and just let it be decided on. And, and, and some of the stuff that they bring up and some of the problems that they have are, are it's a circus, right? It's just hilarious that some of these things are actually happening and they're actually on TV, but apparently they're pretty popular because the genre seems to be rising instead of declining. And if we had had TV shows back in, in the times when Paul was writing 1 Corinthians, we might have seen something similar. The, the Greeks loved to go to court. And so what we might have seen is a similar thing. This is show, this circus between different people, Corinthians and Greeks, and all these people that are going to court, uh, suing one another over minor things or major things or both, all just kind of lumped in there for this one big show. And what happens was that the Corinthian church didn't seem to be too different. See, if we would have had the show back then, if they'd had some TV shows of some court cases back then, then you might have seen some of these Corinthian Christians in these courts, and you might not have been able to see the difference between the non-Christians and the Christians. And so what Paul does is he writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, is he starts to, to write to them to, to encourage them to be this alternate community that has a different way of operating, that has a different level of love toward one another, that stems from this, this different identity. And this is what he's encouraging for us as well. As, as a church, as a New Testament church, as the people of God, we're to be this alternate community where we have this different way of operating. Not everything happens like the world. They shouldn't have a TV show that, that pictures our lives and then non-Christians' lives and, and no one be able to tell the difference. So we're to be this alternate community, different way of operating. We love each other differently, and we have this different identity than the world. And so as a unique community, Paul writes to them, your your behavior, the way you handle issues and grievances, it ought to be different as well. And so if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 1, Paul begins with this question to the Corinthians. He says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And so inside the Corinthian church, there's dissension, there's problems, there's issues, there's grievances. And so what is happening is that there's there's a lack of fellowship within the church of Corinth. They're, they're, They're going to court against one another. They're suing essentially over these civil issues that they're having even among their body. Now, If you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul had just got done with warning them, with telling them, encouraging them to judge a man who is living in sexual immorality. Indeed, he says he's having his father's wife. He's living in sexual immorality, and within your body, he says to them, for the community, you guys are to deal with this. You are to judge this man. You're to do something. You're to cast him out from among you. 
But the expectations for Paul in this community, in this church, weren't just handle the big issues like sexual immorality and all those small issues you can do with them however you want to do it. That's not what he's doing. He, he says it goes much deeper than that. Don't just deal with the major problems in a way that's uniquely Christian. Deal with everyday life kind of issues and problems according to the scripture in light of the gospel. And so what they're to be is this involved community where they, they know one another and they're involved with one another's lives. So where they can make judgments even on everyday life with one another. And so he says, if there's a, there's a grievance, you're to take it not to the unrighteous, that is to the, the non-believer, but take it to the saints, take it to the ones who've trusted in Christ. You're to handle these grievances within the community. Now, before a couple years ago, if you'd put me in a room where there's like fine dining and there's these, these great servers that are really well prepped and know how to do things, and you said, Dylan, would you tell me, how are they doing? Give me a, a, a judgment, evaluation on these servers. Are they doing this right? I would have watched and I'd say, well, is the glass full? Like, do they seem to be happy people? Do, are people mad at them? Then, yeah, they're doing great. I wouldn't know how to evaluate or how to judge those things. But a few years ago, Catherine's sister was a, a catering manager at this really well-known catering place in Stillwater, and I worked a couple of events for him. Before one of the events, they bring us out there like, this is how you do things. Like, you're serving food with the left hand, you're clearing with the right, you're pouring a drink with a certain hand, you, you don't serve the food until you have all the food, and then you only serve it to the ladies first, and all the way around in a certain order. And I'm like, oh, never knew any of that stuff. I didn't know that there was a mode of operating here, right? So before, if you'd have asked me to evaluate, I would not have known and been able to give a solid evaluation because I had no idea about these details. I had no idea what was supposed to happen. But afterwards, I did. And, and Paul is saying, you're taking these courts to, to people who are unrighteous, who are non-believers. They, they don't know how to evaluate this rightly. They don't know how to evaluate this in light of being a Christian and a believer, trusting in God. They're just evaluating it in their own terms. And so he's saying, don't take your grievances to them. That's not going to help because they have a completely different worldview. They don't even know how to look at this from the right angle. Sure, they might give you a just uh, uh, cause. They might give you a just agreement. But that doesn't mean that they're coming at it from the right angle. I mean, can you imagine in the Old Testament as Moses is taking the Israelites through the desert and to the wilderness where there's all sorts of sin, all sorts of grumbling, if he were to pull up one of the, one of the Gentiles of the time and say, what do you think about these people? What do, you, what do you think's going on here? What do you think about their grumbling? What do you think about their, their desire to go back to Egypt? What do you think about their, their wanting to build a golden calf and, and worship it instead? And they would be like, well, doesn't seem like a big deal. No problem. We do that all the time where we live. What's the big deal here? Because they're coming from a different worldview. They're coming from a different place. And so Paul is saying, don't take it there. Surely you can do this within your own community. And so what he has here is, is a few implications that I think we need to take note of. The first one is, is that Paul expects this church to have genuine community. So in other words, what he expects is that there's genuine involvement in one another's lives. There's, there's no anonymous Christian within the Corinthian church. There's no one who's anonymous. They're to be in one another's lives. That's what fellowship is, is to share life with one another, have a common life together. And so there's no one anonymous. Everyone's involved with everyone else's life. I mean, I don't have time for all this, but a brief look in the New Testament will show just the importance of what community is and Christian community. It's all over. Paul is writing to New Testament local churches in towns where there are people that are together and they assemble together, and he tells them and expects them to do certain things to one another, which is used throughout the New Testament. And so there's, there's implications there. There's importance placed on 
Christian community, on this local body of believers. And this is why here at Sojourn we say, we want Sunday morning, this is important for our fellowship, this is important for our worship together, but also home groups. This is, this is where we get into one another's lives deeper on a deeper level where we can really be involved. And so we say, jump in a home group. This is what we want for your life because this is what we see in the scripture. We see this is the emphasis, where we need to be involved with one another's lives. There's no one who can do it on their own. There's no one who's supposed to, and there's no one who's to be anonymous in our body. We're to know one another and be involved, and the only way to be involved with one another is to share that life together. There has to be time spent there, and so when we come together, what we want is this openness with our own lives, with even decisions and what's going on. We want some vulnerability where we, we show some weakness, where we show some struggles, where we show some problems. It's a sharing of those things in community, a sharing of burdens so that we can let the saints, as Paul calls them here, we let them speak into those things. This is the way community is to operate. And so community is, is vastly important. But another thing we have to see here is that it's also messy, the Corinthian church was kind of a circus. I mean, we've already seen some stuff. We're getting ready to get into some more stuff. Sexual immorality is just rampant among them. They've got a man happening of his father's wife, and everybody seems to be okay with it. They're boasting in these things. They're all dividing over certain people that they want to follow. They, they think that they have great wisdom. I mean, this place is a circus, and it's not very much different than what we are. I mean, we can't act like we're ahead of the Corinthians. We might have some different manifestations of these sins, but we've got all sorts of sin creeping in our hearts and all around the, the corners of our church. It's messy, but it doesn't decrease the importance of community. Yeah, community is messed up, but it doesn't decrease the importance. He says here, when you have a grievance against one another, there, there's going to be grievances. There's going to be issues. There's going to be problems. We're going to have run-ins with one another. There's going to be problems that are going to crop up, and that's all part of our growth as well. And so the encouragement is not to well, back up. Stay away from that. That's going to get bad there. You're not going to have a good time. No, the encouragement from all the scripture is to jump into these things. There's no perfect church. There's no perfect community around. But what we need is not a perfect church. We need an imperfect church. Because one, we're imperfect. And two, we also are, are on this process of growth in our godliness. And we don't need perfect people around us. We need imperfect people around us to continue to chisel away at all the imperfections that are inside of us. And so we jump in. And this is what we're doing. This is to be an alternate community that doesn't deal with things the way everybody else deals with things, that deals with things from this uniquely Christian perspective. Corinthians aren't supposed to deal with things the way that Corinth does. They're not supposed to go to court because the Greeks love to go to court. They're supposed to handle things differently within the church. And so we shouldn't deal with things the same way as our culture deals with them. If the culture's aligned with Scripture and how it deals with stuff, that's fine. But if it's not, then we go with the Scripture. We say, Let's gonna, we're going to deal with it that way. And so we deal with things according to the Scripture. And so we see 1 Corinthians 5, and it says to cast these people out. And we say, it doesn't make sense according to the culture, but we want to follow church discipline as it's laid out in the Scripture. We see that if you want to gain a crowd in the world, it's not very hard. You can sell tickets. You can get lots of people to show up for things. The church is supposed to operate differently. So we don't put on a show up here. We just say, here's the word. Here's the gospel. This is what we're going to give people right? We have to operate differently, and we could go on and on with how we're supposed to do this, but Paul explains to them, the way you deal with grievances, the way you deal with problems ought to be different than the rest of the world. So he goes on to explain to them, here's what you do. Instead of taking this before unbelievers, he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? In other words, he's, he's starting to give a reason. Here's why you can deal with this differently. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? 
How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Saints, he says, are going to judge the, the world and angels, which is, I mean, what is that, Paul? Like, that's an amazing thought to even think about. We can't even wrap our minds around that. In Daniel chapter 7, there's this kingdom who, who, who is reigned by this one who's called the Son of Man. He comes up to the Ancient of Days, and from the Ancient of Days, he gets all dominion and all, all glory over all peoples of the earth. And he is the one who has this kingdom that's established forever and ever. And he rules this kingdom with the saints. This, this kingdom is one where there's, there's sharing of the kingdom with these saints that come with this Son of Man. There's the sharing of authority. There's the sharing of a judgment. And so we know the Son of Man to be Jesus Christ. The ones who are the saints are those who have trusted in Jesus. They are the ones who share in this kingdom authority. They share in this kingdom judgment. They share in all that comes with being a part of the Son of Man. And Paul is drawing from this and saying, you're sharing in the judgment of this. The Son of Man is the one who's going to judge the world, but you are sharing in this as his people. And so he's, he's arguing, as he did with last week, he, greater to the lesser. If you can judge the world, and if you can judge angels, then how much more should you be able to judge these everyday life, civil cases that you're having among you? Like, surely you can handle that. He gives these saints different instructions. If you look at verse 4, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, earlier Paul says, I don't write this to shame you. Now Paul is trying to shame them. Like, they should have had this figured out by now. You're going before unbelievers. You should know that there's a problem here. Don't go to these outsiders with inside affairs. Handle them in this body. Handle them in the house. He says it's, even, it's shameful to take these things to unbelievers. If you, if you take these things to unbelievers, you're killing fellowship within, you're killing the mission without. So Paul, he tells them to do things differently. And he even questions them in a pretty harsh way when he says, where's your wisdom now? All you Corinthians that claim to, ha claim to have so much wisdom, where's that at now? Is there, there's no one that's wise enough out of all the things that you've claimed in your own wisdom, there's no one wise enough to even do one of these everyday little cases? This is a biting remark that shows the, the, hopefully shows them and it was trying to open up their eyes to their foolishness. But I want us to notice once again, who's Paul addressing this to? He's, he's not singling out someone who's taken a case with someone else. Who's he, who's he talking to? He's addressing this church. He's addressing this whole community. In other words, it's not just these two people. They're in air and they're responsible. Oh, the church is to speak into this. The community is responsible for this. And so he's calling these Corinthian Christians to stand as this alternate community in the world. And this is what all churches are to be. An alternate community where things are done differently. All believers, we need community that we're involved with and that they're involved with us and our lives are intersecting. And we need these, this community of believers to be able to speak into our lives and we need to be part of that community that speaks into other, people, other people's lives. We need these fellow believers that will stand around us, love us, encourage us, question us, love us well. And that way, if a grievance comes up, we don't have to look around and say, where do we deal with this? No, we already have community that's already speaking into our lives that we already know has established this relationship of love with us and me with them. So we don't have to look. We know we, we deal with this in community. I mean, it only makes sense if we're trying to live a faithful Christian life 
that the way we deal with problems, the way we deal with things that come up is to ask faithful Christian family, not outsiders with how we're supposed to deal with these things, with what we need for advice and counsel and judgments. We want to go to those people who have the same goals, the, the same desires to glorify Christ, the, the same manner of life. They're, they're going after the same thing in their own life. Those are the people we, we go to. And he says beyond that, to go outside with these inside affairs will cripple your fellowship as one goes to war against another and it will kill your mission. We have to trust within our community that God has given us all that we need to, to walk this life faithfully. He's, he's gifted the people of the church with the gifts that we all need to grow in, in godliness. And so we need one another, we rely upon one another, but we trust that God has given this church and every church all that it needs to grow in godliness the way that it's supposed to. And so it's the whole church's responsibility with our own gifting, with our own skill set that God has given us to be involved with each other's life and to speak into issues. This is the way to be a community to really be intersecting with one another's lives. They are to handle this grievance with, within the church, to have this community that's involved, where no one is anonymous. But just having an involved community is just scratching the surface. You see, Paul didn't just want them to, to handle all their grievances in-house. That's not what he's pushing for completely. If we continue reading, if you look in verse 7, he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You see, the biggest problem with these Corinthian Christians isn't that they were going to unbelievers with their lawsuits. Isn't that they were taking these grievances before those who weren't even trusting in God. The biggest problem with these Corinthian questions is that they were having these issues at all. That they were having these problems with one another at all. Brother goes to, to court against brother. This is the issue. That's the problem, that there's issues at all within your body. They have lawsuits together, and this is the crippling thing for this church. Brother goes to court against brother. And we know that if that happens, there's no winner within the family. You think through the Civil War when, when families were torn apart based on different issues. And, you know, you had family on both sides of the line, as, as many accounts say. And so basically, people got to the point where there's, it's a lose-lose situation. If this side wins, I lose because my son is on this side. Or if this side wins, I've still got family on this side. So it, it's kind of this lose-lose situation. This is what Paul is saying. It's already a defeat to even have these issues. There's no winner in these things. There's no way that you guys come out on top. And so what's the alternative? If you continue in verse 7. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Well, what a great question to be before us. I mean, this is what we've been called to, right? This sounds like a foreign thing to our ears. Suffer wrong? Be defrauded? That sounds ridiculous. We've got to stand up for our rights. That's what we've been taught. That's what we're grown in. And the, and the Bible and the scripture calls us to take up our cross, to suffer even wrongly, and to do it in a way that would honor God. He says, why not do these things? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That's better for you than the defeat of taking your brother to court. Why not rather let these things happen? And of course, as I say that, many of you are probably even thinking like, I got an answer, why not? I could tell you why not. I like what one uh, commentator says when he says, one can give a thousand reasons why not, but they all begin with the word but, as in, but you don't know what he did to me. And they're motivated by some form of self-protection or self-gain. Yikes. 
There are a lot of reasons that we can come up to. You just don't understand my situation. And everyone has the excuse that their situation is unique. And he says, why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather be wrong? There's a lot of reasons why not, but, but we ought to think about what's the loving thing to do? What does it truly mean to love our brothers? What does it truly mean to be a part of this loving community? None of these why nots, none of the answers that we can come up with are informed by love or informed by the gospel. And so one commentator goes on to say, the, the existence of contention that calls for decision by a third party, whoever he may be, proves that love has been overthrown and replaced by selfish desire either to acquire or to retain. Is this not our problem? When they act out of these selfish desires, he's saying you're already defeated. These things are defeating you. And so what he's, he's telling them to do, he's calling for believers to forego their rights, to suffer injustice, to even suffer abuse willingly. Why? Because they're not just to be an involved community. They're to be a loving community. The goal isn't just to settle everything in-house. The goal is that they would love one another. They would love one another enough to suffer wrong from one another. But the opposite seems to be happening in Corinth. Verse 8 says, But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And every community is known for something. If you step onto a college campus and you start asking about different things that are going on, on campus, like they will tell you there are identifying marks for, for different uh, groups and communities on a campus. If you talk about Greek life, they could tell you this fraternity is known for this, this one's known for this, this one's known for this. If you go into a high school, there's different groups. Like the jocks are known for this, they play sports. The nerds are known for being intelligent. Every community is known for something. Churches, indeed, are the same way. They're known for something. The church in Corinth is not known for what it should be known for. And Paul is calling for you. This ought to be a loving community. One of the things that you should be known for as a church is for loving one another enough to suffer these wrongs. And so we, as well as our church, our community, we should be known for this, this love, which is a self-sacrificial love, which says, I'm willing to be wronged. I'm willing to be defrauded, especially for one of these brothers or sisters here. We ought to be known for our love to outsiders, to enemies, even Jesus calls us to, to those who don't even step to foot in here. But we ought to especially be known for love for one another. This is through the New Testament you see this, but this love for one another, it's important for our fellowship, it's important for our closeness, it's important for our unity, it's important for our mission. If you look in John 13, 35, it says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. People will know you by what? It's important for unity. It's important for mission because people, outsiders, will know that you're my disciples by your love. And so are we willing to suffer for one another? Are we willing to forego our own rights that we could stand up for to lay those things down for the good of our brothers, to lay a grievance down? Are we willing to suffer injustice and abuse willingly? Laying those things down. See, God calls us into community. From that, there's, there's no doubt. And what community does is it starts to call us outside of ourselves. To look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. To love not ourselves and follow selfish desires, but to love God and to follow his desires and his goals and his plans. We're not to think individually anymore. We're to think corporately. We're to think outside of ourselves. I mean, this is the big shock when people come to get married, right? Then now all of a sudden, then you make decisions. You don't make decisions for you. Where do I want to eat? What do I want to do? No, you have to start thinking for another. 
And actually what you're supposed to do is start thinking about their opinion, their interests, their desires above your own is what the Bible calls us to. And this is the big shock, but this is what we've been called to in community. This is what we've been called to in a church, to start thinking not just of ourselves, but we're thinking corporately. We're thinking of others. How can I love this brother? How can I love this sister that's saying, I'll be laid down if I have to, if I only can love that person. You see, we do this by the power of the gospel. Because there was one whose name was Jesus who did this for us, who suffered unjustly, who went and sought not his own interests, but the interests of others, weak sinners, who was willing to lay down his very life that there might be unity, that there might be faith, that there might be a community of people who would come together and live for God. So with that as our standard, with that as our Savior, with the gospel as, our, as what forms us, we can see that to even go to court against one another is already a defeat. See, we bear the name of Jesus. We're to be one as God is one, the scripture says. We're to have fellowship like God has fellowship. We're to love like God. And so we can see that going to court, and that's already a defeat. How much, how much more can we love one another ought to be the question. And so if, we, if these things are true, if we have this involved community where we're involved with one another's lives, if we have this loving community where we're, we're willing to lay things down, or suffer wrong and suffer unjustly or even suffer abuse, then what we're going to have is something that looks very different from what the world has or even can offer. So Paul says for the church in Corinth, you're not being this alternate community like you should be. You're wronging and defrauding one another, and that's added on to all the other problems that they've had. I mean, there's so many things that have already been addressed. This is just added on top of those things. So because of this, Paul starts to give them a warning. If you look in verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. And he goes on on this huge list. But he's saying from the beginning, if you persist in unrighteousness, then there's danger, and there's real danger here. Remember from Daniel chapter 7, the ones who inherit the kingdom are the saints. But this is a kingdom that's not just any kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom of righteousness, ruled by a righteous king, by the righteous son of man. And so this is a kingdom where the, the saints are living within this kingdom of righteousness. In other words, they have right living is one of the characterizing marks of this community. There's righteousness involved. And so he goes on. He tells them, this is what unrighteousness is. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The truth is that God has clearly made moral demands on people's lives. God has made commands for us. He says, don't be deceived and act like these things aren't true. Perhaps the Corinthian Christians thought, well, like, maybe God can't mean that. Like, we've, we've trusted in this, but surely he can't mean to live like that because that seems so off from what everybody else is doing. But it's clear to these Christians from Paul that the way they lived their lives mattered. What they were doing, their behavior matters. And so Paul lists off several things, several moral demands that he says these things apply. These things matter, that you don't practice these things. So much so he says if you persist in these things, 
you are in danger. The people that persist in these things do not inherit the kingdom of God. He couldn't be more clear. You don't inherit it. Instead, you get judgment instead of the inheritance that you were to get if you were a saint. How easy is it for us to say, just as the Corinthians might have, like, and that doesn't seem to be a big deal. God is gracious. He's loving. Maybe he didn't even mean that. Surely he couldn't have meant it that way. That seems a little bit too harsh. Or we could look at this passage. Paul, writing to Corinth. I mean, what, what does he know about where we live? He doesn't know our culture. He didn't know about scientific advances. He didn't know about how the way the, the humanity was going to proceed and progress and all of our knowledge and all of our wisdom. He didn't know those things. It was written a long time ago. And so the result happens that we start to have this lack of brokenness over sin. We start to be numb for the things that are happening. Even things that are clearly stated in Scripture, we start to justify them in certain ways. But there are many places where some of these ideas listed that he, he clearly defines as this is unrighteousness, these are those who don't inherit the kingdom. There are some places where these things are openly accepted. Paul says these are characteristics of those who do not receive the kingdom. They do not inherit these things. And so when we don't take sin seriously, especially sins that he lists out for us, then we'll justify almost any behavior. When we don't take sin seriously, we will justify almost any behavior. So Paul, he, he's calling out to this church that is ready to cave in and capitulate on almost every cultural front as Corinth was. And he's saying to the church, he's saying to the Corinthians, don't be deceived. There's real danger here. Those who practice these things really don't inherit the kingdom. These things are to be taken seriously. In other words, what he's saying to the Corinthians is stop living this way. The church, this is an alternate community. It's to be living differently. Its members are to behave differently. Don't live this way. He's not saying you need to behave perfectly, but there should be this characteristic among the community that they do not persist in their sin, that they're growing, that they're walking away from these things. God means what he says. God means what he says. And so his moral demands that he said, they're to be followed, no matter what the culture, no matter what the age, no matter how smart we are, his moral demands are to be followed. These moral demands were given in the Old Testament. They're upheld in the New Testament. Paul says this is for the church too. This is all throughout history. These are the moral demands that God has placed on people's lives. And so this is the way we are to live to abstain from these kinds of things because it says if you persist in these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we could look at that list and we could say, that seems pretty difficult. Greedy? I mean, some of them seem to be pretty big and out there, but greediness, like there's all sorts of areas that Paul attacks this in. These are lives of unrighteousness. It might seem like to some of us that this is impossible. How can we walk away from these things forever? But Paul has something to say to those who might raise questions from verses 9 and 10. And he says it in verse 11. And he says to them, and such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
What an amazing statement. What an amazing verse we get from Paul. He says, some of you were this. What a horrible thing to say to him, right? He's saying, this is the worst of the worst you can imagine, and that was you. But it's also one of these greatest things that he said, because that was you. This is some were you. You're not that anymore. You're something different now. And so what he's doing there, he's inviting them in to change based on who they are now, not based on who they were They once belonged to the world, behaving as the world behaves, but now they are Jesus's. They once had given themselves to these horrific sins that had horrific consequences, but now they're justified. They once were known by the stain that is their sin that marked their community, and now they are washed clean. They are something different now. And Paul says, because you are something different now, you are to live like it. God, in his divine mercy, through Jesus and by the Spirit, has transformed these wicked Corinthians. And what Paul is saying is because you have been transformed, you are to live like it. Your former life is just that, your former life. Move forward. This is not just an involved community. This is not just to be a loving community. This is a redeemed community. They're full of former idolaters, former Drunkards, former greedy people, former homosexuals. This is their community now. This is what they were. This is pretty twisted stuff. And only God can untwist those things and say, like verse 11, you are washed, you are sanctified, you were justified. What an amazing reminder of the power of our God. Let's stop thinking that God can't do stuff. Let's stop thinking that God can't change people, even characterized by the worst sins that we can imagine. God is calling and redeeming people for himself. And this people is called the church. And he says of this church, this is who you were. I've redeemed you and brought you out of this. The people of, the, of our community and of every church should be known for many things. But because of Jesus, because of what he has done, what we should be known for as we are washed. We are sanctified, we are justified. You see, the gospel offers real transformation. God doesn't leave us in our sins. He calls us out of those things. So we have to stop thinking that we can just be saved and live however we want, that we don't have to follow certain commands. That's not true. God doesn't leave us there. And if we've been left in those sins, and we need to start questioning, have I really trusted Christ? Because he pulls us out of those things. Not that we walk perfectly, but that we do walk. We can follow these things. We can obey the commands of Scripture, not in and of ourselves. It was never meant to work that way. We're meant to look to somebody else. Nothing, nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ can do this. There are so many offers of transformation in your life that only offer temporary fixes. Nothing but the gospel can transform you to saying this is what you were to this is what you are. The gospel is the only thing that does this. And we won't be perfect, but we must be growing. We must be going in a direction. That means that our behavior, it changes in certain ways. And so are you stuck in one of these sins? then you need to know that you are not too far gone. Not beyond God's reach and beyond God's power. I'm reminded of the lyrics of Come Ye Sinners, where he says, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Every believer here stands today as this testimony to this very reality that we're seeing in verse 11. That God saves sinners, and of which I am the worst. 
we were washed. We were sanctified and justified. He transforms us, gives us a new life, and encourages us and empowers us to walk faithfully. See, this list could be the list of sojourn right here. We could say of sojourn, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified. And because this is true, because we are now redeemed and are a redeemed community, our behavior matters. The way we live now matters. We've been bought. We bear the name of Jesus. We live for his glory, and how we live for his glory now matters. So for believers, behavior, attitudes, desires, goals, those all change and are continuing to change as we grow. God doesn't just wash away our sin and then send us on our way, but he transforms. He sanctifies. He justifies. So are you a part of a redeemed community? Can you say, and such was I, but now? If not, and that's where we have to say, believe in Jesus, because this is what he does. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. It's only in him. But if you are, then you need to be a functional part of what we're doing. You need to understand that this is, this is an alternate community, that the way we live ought to be different. The way we handle issues ought to be different. The way we love one another ought to be different. The way we realize our identity ought to be different. We have a different way of operating from a different level of love that stems from a different reality, a different identity. In Christ, we've been given new life. Let's walk in new life. Let me pray for us. Father, for all of us here today, we can say that naked we come to you for dress, helpless we look to you for grace, foul we to the fountain fly. We don't go to the fountain all washed up, and we say and we plead, wash me, Savior, or I die. And in your word, you say of those who have trusted in you, you've been washed, you've been justified, you've been sanctified. We want to thank you for your amazing power at work in so many lives, and we pray for more. That people who are stuck in this sin, sins listed in verses 9 and 10, sins listed in other portions of Scripture, that you would call them out of that, and that they would rejoin the community of the redeemed. That way they could proclaim, that way they could sing, I was washed. Sin had left its stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. God, would you send us out of here as a redeemed community, ready to live differently, ready to suffer abuse and wrong willingly, ready to love not just our enemies, but one another really well, ready to to proclaim that the gospel can transform. And so God, do work in us, not for our name, but so that the name of the one who washed us could be glorified. That's why we're here. That's why we read your Bible. That's why we exist. Help us to do it faithfully. Amen.